Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like a series on Cycles of American Political Thought. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And by FreshBooks, the super simple invoicing solution made to help lawyers, consultants, and freelancers get organized, save time, and get paid faster. Creating and sending invoices, managing your expenses, and tracking your billable hours is about to get a lot easier. Go to freshbooks.com slash amicus for your free 30-day trial. That's freshbooks.com slash amicus. And by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice when you go to audible.com slash amicus. And welcome back to Amicus, Slate's slightly sleepy Supreme Court podcast. And I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's recovering Supreme Court correspondent. Now, the last time we all spoke, it was June, it was the end of the term, and everything had gone completely crazy, and we all had a lot of feelings, and we talked a lot, and then uh, all the justices broke and gave fabulous speeches at undisclosed fabulous locations. And as we recover from all this action, and I should tell you I'm still uh, away on vacation at an undisclosed location, we thought we would jump right back into the thick of things at the High Court this week with a show all about recent developments relating to the Voting Rights Act. Now, you probably heard, uh, unless you two are in an undisclosed location, that this month marked the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. The bill was signed into law by Lyndon B. Johnson on August 6, 1965, in the wake of several attempts to remedy a long, long history, particularly in the South, of poll taxes, literacy tests, and other attempts to disenfranchise black voters. Voting rights isn't just in the air because of the big anniversary, though. It's also because of a bunch of critical cases in federal courts and because of a big new book by Ari Berman, political correspondent for The Nation, called Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. This book really lays out the struggle for voting rights and the backlash that it engendered And it really covers in deep, deep granular detail what the antecedents are to the modern voting rights struggles that we are seeing today. So Ari, first of all, welcome to Amicus. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Dahlia. And I've been an admirer for a very long time. So Ari, would you take us back and you can, if you want to, take us uh, back to pre-Voting Rights America and right back to the Edmund Pettus Bridge, if you want to, 
Um, and help us understand what it was like to try to vote while African-American in the early 1960s? Well, in states like Mississippi and Alabama, it was nearly impossible to vote if you were African-American. In Mississippi, only 6.7% of African-Americans were registered to vote before the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. In a place like Selma, Alabama, the number was even lower. Only 2% of African-Americans were registered in Selma. And you had a myriad ways of keeping African-Americans from voting, whether it was official ways like literacy tests, poll taxes, property clauses, or it was unofficial ways like violence, economic retribution, social retribution, all of which combined to maintain a system of white supremacy that had lasted for decades. And so when people, including John Lewis, were marching on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were both marching for the most basic of rights, the right to vote, and they were also marching to protest the death and the violence that had been inflicted on people who had tried to register and who had tried to participate in places like Alabama. And help us understand, because this is such an important part, I think, of the story, the forces that led LBJ to go from being kind of lukewarm about the passage of something that looked like the Voting Rights Act to being its biggest booster in an incredibly compressed amount of time. Well, LBJ was a complicated figure when it came to civil rights. For many years when he represented Texas, first in the House and then in the Senate, he was a, an opponent of civil rights bills. He didn't vote for any civil rights legislation from 1937 to 1956. Then he slowly began moving on civil rights. He sponsored the 57 Civil Rights Act and the 1960 Civil Rights Act. And then as president, he signed the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And, and voting rights was always something that I think LBJ believed in. He, he called it the meat in the coconut. And he knew that the vote would give people power to change their circumstances. At the same time, Martin Luther King in late 1964, after receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, went to visit LBJ at the White House and said that he was going to Selma to launch a voting rights campaign and he wanted the president's support. And LBJ basically said, Martin, I agree with you, but I'm not going to do it now. I've got to work on all this great society legislation, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, immigration, economy stuff, etc. And so this is going to have to wait. We just passed the Civil Rights Act. This is going to have to wait till 66 or 67. But in the meantime, LBJ was instructing his Justice Department to begin drafting a voting rights bill so that they would be ready when the day came. What happened is after Selma, the Johnson administration had to aggressively expedite its timetable for voting rights legislation, that it wasn't going to wait till 1966 or 1967 any longer. It had to come immediately because the public was so outraged about the atrocities in Selma. And so we, what we see is that Selma Bloody Sunday happens on March 7th. 1965. And by March 15th, 1965, so eight days later, LBJ is speaking before the Congress and introducing the Voting Rights Act. So LBJ was someone who, once he realized that the circumstances were there, moved very aggressively to push this bill and not only pushed it legislatively, but really used the full moral force of his presidency to push this. And I thought it was so interesting in the book, Ari, that some of the pushback, particularly in the courts uh, to the Voting Rights Act, suggested, more than suggested, uh, expressly said, oh, this was passed in a hurry. There were thugs on the streets of the South. Uh, yeah. In other words, the fact that there was so much moral authority actually 
came to be an argument against the legality of the Voting Rights Act at one well, point. Well, yeah, exactly. So so Southern conservatives challenged the Voting Rights Act immediately. I mean, within days, George Wallace in Alabama is telling his registrars that they shouldn't be registering black voters. And then in a matter of months, South Carolina is organizing a legal challenge to the Voting Rights Act. That's then heard uh, in early 1966, and it's one of the longest trials in Supreme Court history. It lasts for a period of two days. And the Southern conservatives are making two arguments. They're saying that, number one, that the federal government doesn't have the power to tell states how to run their elections. And the second thing they're saying is that this is a response, as you mentioned, to a mob on the streets, that Congress shouldn't have been deliberating uh, you know, based on what the civil rights movement was doing and and that therefore they hadn't really thought this thing through. And the Supreme Court in an eight to one decision released on the first anniversary of Bloody Sunday. So March 7th, 1966 says, yes, absolutely. The federal government does have the power to regulate state elections. That's exactly why we passed a Voting Rights Act. And the second thing is that they did deliberate on this, that they they spent six months after Bloody Sunday talking about this. Uh, There had been three civil rights laws before the 65 Voting Rights Act that didn't solve this problem. So Congress knew exactly what it was doing. The Justice Department was very methodical in drafting this legislation. And essentially, what the Voting Rights Act did was enforce the 15th Amendment of 1870 that had largely been ignored except for a brief period during Reconstruction after its passage. Ari, in a minute, I'm going to ask you about Shelby County. That was the 2013 uh, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that in many ways cut the heart out of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, But before we do, I want to sit here for a minute on the case you just mentioned, the case that comes one year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1966. Can you tell us a little bit about the one dissent in that case? So Justice Hugo Black from Alabama dissented. And he dissented in particular to a a statute of the law known as Section 5. And Section 5 really hadn't been used much after the passage. But what it said is that those states with the worst histories of discrimination, places like Alabama and Mississippi, had to approve their voting changes with the federal government to prevent discrimination in the future. And even though this wasn't really being enforced once the law was implemented because they were worried about striking down literacy tests and and registering voters and monitoring elections, they weren't really worried about a whole scope of broader election changes. But Hugo Black basically said, this is reminiscent of Reconstruction when the southern states have to bow down on their knees in front of the federal government. And it's humiliating to the South. uh, And I believe it's unconstitutional. And interestingly enough, uh, that same argument would be embraced by five justices on the court uh, roughly 50 years later when they struck down the formula that required those states with the worst histories of voting discrimination to approve their voting changes. And is that a surprise to you, Ari, that the salience of this argument that the states have dignity and they have sovereignty and it's mortifying and humiliating to make them scrape and bow before the federal judiciary uh, and and it's mortifying and, and horrendous that they have to go and get pre-cleared by the Justice Department? I mean, reading Black's dissent, does that feel like an argument that should have lasted for 50 years? 
No. And, you know, the reason why it was an eight to one decision was because at the time that was a laughable argument that black was making. We had decades of states disenfranchising black voters by any means necessary. So the idea that the fundamental worry should be about the sovereignty of the states was something that the justices very firmly disagreed with in 1966. We needed a Voting Rights Act, particularly because the states couldn't be trusted, because we weren't a real democracy. You can't be a true democracy when only 6.7 percent of voters of one race are registered in a place like Mississippi. We were fundamentally not a democracy before the Voting Rights Act. And for all our flaws now as a democracy, we are a far more democratic country because of the Voting Rights Act. And what I find disturbing is that that lone dissent by Hugo Black in 1966, then became, almost 50 years later, the majority of the opinion of the Supreme Court. That's what I find so disturbing, that essentially what was once viewed as a completely radical idea became the consensus in conservative legal circles over the coming decades. So we're going to talk about Shelby County in just one minute, but first we're going to pause for a few words about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. Uh, Like most of you who listen to this podcast, I love to learn, especially about the Constitution, just for the pure wonky joy of it. And that's one of the reasons I've become a huge fan of The Great Courses. And today I want to tell you about The Great Courses series on cycles of American political thought. Uh, This is an amazingly useful series of lectures dipping into uh, John Adams, dipping into Thomas Jefferson, dipping into Abraham Lincoln, and an amazing range of historical thinkers and thought. And in a sense, it's a course that's devoted to this core existential question, which is, what is it to be an American thinker? So... The Great Courses has created a special limited time offer for all of our Amicus listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Cycles of American Political Thought, at up to 80% of their original price. So order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. So Ari, when we... When we we're just talking about uh, Shelby County. You made the point that, you know, this argument about dignity of the states was uh, should not have been an enduring argument, much less the kind of cornerstone of John Roberts opinion in Shelby County, the case that in 2013 uh, really cut out the heart of, you know, Section four, Section five of the Voting Rights Act. I want to play for you for one moment a little colloquy between John Roberts and Solicitor General Don Verrilli at oral argument in that case in the spring of 2013. General, is it, is it the government's submission that the citizens in the South are more racist than citizens in the North? It is not, and I do not know the answer to that, Your Honor, but I do think it was reasonable for well, which Congress. you said it is not, and you don't know the answer to it. I, 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 <clears throat> it's not our submission as an objective matter. I don't know the answer to that question, but what I do know is that Congress had before it evidence that there was a continuing need, based on Section 5 objections, based on the purpose-based character of those objections, based on the disparate Section 2 rate, based on the persistence of polarized voting, and based on a gigantic wealth of jurisdiction-specific anecdotal evidence that there was a continuing need need to maintain the deterrent and constraining effect of the Section 5 preclearance process in the covered jurisdictions, and that and, — and not, and not impose it on everyone else. And that's right, given the different. I think what I want to ask you is to help us understand how John Roberts, starting with his 1980 wowie-zowie clerkship with 
Chief Justice uh, William H. Rehnquist, how he becomes the spokesman for this argument that, come on, America, we're over it. Well, John Roberts, as you mentioned, has a very long and sordid history with the Voting Rights Act. And so his Shelby County decision does not come out of nowhere. It's a product of 30 years of opposition uh, to the Voting Rights Act on his behalf. And it really begins, as you mentioned, in the chambers of Justice Rehnquist. And I think people just have to understand how radical Justice Rehnquist was on civil rights issues when he was appointed to the court by Richard Nixon. He was known as the Lone Ranger because he was so far out there. This is someone who believed that Brown versus Board of Education was wrongly decided. He wanted to uphold an all-white primary in Texas. He personally administered literacy tests to black and Hispanic voters in Phoenix when he was a Republican Party official, asking them to read parts of the Constitution before they could vote. So this was someone who had an absolutely scandalous background when it came to civil rights, but nonetheless was appointed on the court and then later made chief justice. And so when Roberts comes into Rehnquist's chambers as a young graduate of Harvard Law School, Rehnquist's chambers are, are basically the Federalist Society before there is an official Federalist Society. He is the center of the emerging conservative movement, particularly on civil rights issues. And what happens around that same time is, is there's a case from Mobile, Alabama. So Mobile is one of these places, and many places in the South were like this in the 1970s and 1980s, where there's a significant African-American population. But the elections are what's known as at-large elections or, or citywide elections. So that means that the white majority in places like Mobile can elect everyone. And there's no African-American representatives in Mobile, even though the city's a third African-American. And what the court says is it's not enough to show that this system, this electoral system is discriminatory. You have to show proof of discriminatory intent, which, as you know, Dahlia, as a lawyer, is very, very, very difficult to show in civil rights cases. And so this Mobile decision comes down um, right before Roberts clerks for Rehnquist. And then, and then after after Roberts clerks for Rehnquist, he goes and works for the Reagan administration. And the Reagan administration is incredibly hostile on civil rights. They're essentially an extension of the Rehnquist view. Uh, Reagan himself has opposed uh, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act. And he appoints all these conservative ideologues that want to gut these things. And so what Roberts is doing in the Reagan administration is he is saying to the Congress that we need to maintain this proof of intentional discrimination. And if we don't, it's going to lead to things like quotas in the electoral sphere. It's going to lead to affirmative action in electoral politics. And there's a huge fight over the 1982 reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And Congress basically overrules Roberts and says, we're not just going to have to show the intent of discrimination. You're just going to have to prove the effect, which is going to make it a lot easier to elect uh, black and Hispanic candidates. And, and Roberts writes memo after memo after memo arguing that the Voting Rights Act is going to lead to affirmative action in, in the political sphere. And what we see is that even though Roberts loses this battle in the early 1980s, this is a formative experience for him. And indeed, when he's appointed as chief justice, one of his signature projects is to roll back not just the Voting Rights Act, but the broader civil rights laws of the 1960s. So, so in a sense, what you're saying is he fought and lost this uh, in his early years working in the Reagan administration, but he was going to win it and win it big, uh, especially in Shelby County? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Robert's on the court, whether it's the voting rights case in 2009 or it's the voting rights case in 2013 or it's a school integration case, 
He believes that the federal government really doesn't have a strong role to play uh, in preventing or stopping or mitigating long-term effects of discrimination. And I, I think he kind of combines both the sort of states' rights jurisprudence of the Rehnquist era with uh, this whole idea of colorblindness that emerged in the Reagan era. He, he fuses these two ideologies to oppose the Voting Rights Act. Ari, one thing listeners might be wondering is we've heard a lot about the Voting Rights Act still functioning in the courts uh, even this summer. So we had a landmark trial in North Carolina that is challenging their new very, very restrictive voting regime. Uh, we have a federal court saying that Texas uh, and their voter ID law actually violates the Voting Rights Act. So it seems to me that it might be a natural instinct to say, even though some important chunks of the VRA are gone, uh, maybe plaintiffs are doing just fine bringing cases under Section 2, another section of the Voting Rights Act that was left intact after Shelby County. Well, I think it's very premature to make this argument. And what, what happened as a result of the Shelby County decision was two things. The first thing was that laws that were blocked as discriminatory, like Texas's voter ID law, were able to go into effect and they could only be challenged after they had been put back in place. So we had laws that we already knew were discriminatory that were allowed to be in place. And, and that really put a burden on, on many voters. The second thing that happened is that states like North Carolina passed new restrictions far beyond what they had previously considered. So North Carolina essentially curtailed or repealed every voting reform in that state uh, that had encouraged people to vote and added a bunch of new restrictions. So a strict voter ID law, cutting early voting, eliminating same-day registration, eliminating the ability to vote anywhere in your county. They even eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds that was taught in high school civics class. And they eliminated Citizens Awareness Month that encourage people to register to vote. So it was like such the greatest hits of voter suppression in, in North Carolina. And we don't know that the North Carolina law has been blocked. It wasn't blocked uh, on a preliminary basis in 2014. And we, we saw uh, thousands of people turned away in that state by these new restrictions. And we don't know that it's going to be blocked uh, in 2015 or 2016 because a conservative judge is hearing the case on the district court level. We don't know what will happen on the appeals court level. And if any of these cases get to the Supreme Court, it's very worrisome because, remember, these cases are being tried under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which still exists. Section Section 2 was the provision that Roberts was fighting in 1980. And so if you think Roberts has forgotten these battles that he fought uh, in, in the 1980s, I think we're going to be sorely mistaken because I, I think he still is, is very much looking to try to gut Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act as well. And, and it probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, that the burden under Section 2 is extremely high. The burden of proof is on the plaintiffs, whereas under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, it was on those states that had to get their voting changes approved. The standard for striking down uh, one of these discriminatory election laws is very complicated under Section 2. In Section 5, essentially, the, the standard was you couldn't institute a voting change that leaves African-Americans or other minorities worse off. It was pretty easy to prove that. Under Section 2, there's this whole host of factors. And when I'm sitting in court uh, listening to the Justice Department or the civil rights groups try to strike down these laws, you, you get a headache 
uh, trying to follow all the factors that the judge is considering. So these are extremely complicated, extremely long cases. And that's exactly what the Voting Rights Act was supposed to stop. It was supposed to stop the fact that states would pass these discriminatory measures and they could only be blocked after years of litigation in often hostile courts. And my fear is that that's where we're headed right now, that it's very difficult to block these laws, that the judiciary is hostile, and that many voters are going to be disenfranchised in the meantime. So so I'm going to make a fatuous comparison just to get you to weigh in on this sort of larger question, which I think plagues this whole debate about vote fraud on the one hand, vote suppression on the other. And that is, it always feels like there's kind of like two Scooby-Doo buses, you know, running (laughs) around searching for ghosts, right? The ghost of vote suppression on the one hand, the ghost of vote fraud on the other, and and completely talking past each other so that, you know, even the reaction to your book, Ari, has been, you know, well, this is in response to rampant vote fraud. You know, we have a huge vote fraud problem in America. And I, I wonder if, you know, part of the reason these discussions are just so hellishly difficult is because both sides don't even agree on basic premises. Well, I, but, but I don't believe that both sides are equal here. I don't believe that there's a, the same level of truth uh, to both sides of the argument. For example, take the 2014 election. There was no evidence of voter fraud in Texas or North Carolina uh, to justify these new laws. But what we did see on a purely empirical level was thousands of people turned away from the polls. Democracy North Carolina found 2,300 instances of voters who were turned away because the state eliminated same-day registration or they cut early voting or uh, they didn't allow you to vote anywhere in the county anymore. And so, I mean, these were documented cases, 2,300 cases of documented examples of, of voters being turned away. In Texas, we don't know exactly how many, but there were dozens and dozens of stories that came out of people not being able to vote because of the voter ID law. There were not dozens and dozens of stories, let alone thousands of stories of voter impersonation or similar examples of voter fraud. And so I think that the evidence of disenfranchisement has been real, unfortunately, whereas the evidence of voter fraud is not. And and I, I don't think that the problem is that people are talking past each other. I think the problem is that millions of dollars have been spent and all the leading figures in the conservative movement and the Republican Party continually say over and over and over again that there is evidence of voter fraud, even though there's not that evidence of voter fraud. And if you repeat something enough, if you say it enough on Fox News, if you write about it enough on Breitbart, if you get all your GOP candidates for president to endorse it, then it starts to become real and you start to believe it. So I don't even know at this point if elements in the Republican Party know that there's no voter fraud or they just convince themselves that there is because there's all these stories floating out there about voter fraud, even if they're disproven when you really look at the actual evidence or the examples or the data. Ari, in just a moment, I want to ask you about the 2016 election. But first, a word about another one of our sponsors. If you're somebody who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on those pesky administrative tasks means having more time to focus on your clients and their work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. Even if you are not a numbers person like myself, you'll be shocked at how easy FreshBooks is to use. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com amicus and enter amicus in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. 
So Ari, I think this is the last question I want to ask you, but I think it's an important one. Uh, 2016 is going to be the first presidential election that happens post Shelby County. Uh, And what that means is that all these new states who have enacted new restrictions uh, are going to see their voters head to the polls without the full panoply of protections that the Voting Rights Act might have afforded them. What part of that worries you the most? And what are we going to see in the next two years? Well, I'm, I'm worried about a few things. I'm worried that 15 states already have new voting restrictions in place for the first presidential cycle in 2016. And that includes swing states like Wisconsin and, and North Carolina, where I think there's going to be a big burden on voters. I'm worried that state legislatures are going to come back in 2016 and pass new restrictions. Uh, and it's going to be tough to block them before the election. And I'm concerned that states that were formerly covered under Section 5, places like Georgia or North Carolina or Alabama, Alabama or Mississippi or Texas are going to do new things that they don't have to get approved. And that's also going to be difficult to block before the election, not just on the state level, but also on the local level as well. Changing polling places or changing early voting hours or doing any number of things before the election that are going to be tough to stop in court. So I think we're going to have to be on guard uh, in a number of different ways. I think it's unfortunate that the Congress in particular um, won't take up either federal election reform and won't take up restoring the Voting Rights Act. And and one of the things that I wanted to show with my book was just how important the Voting Rights Act was, that this debate didn't end in 1965, that it's still going on today, uh, and that we really have to understand, I think, the importance of these laws, and I think the broader importance of the right to vote, if we're going to do something about it today. And so I I hope if, if anyone takes away one thing from the book, it's that, you know, this debate is nowhere near over. And I I think maybe another way of saying that, which you say so eloquently in the book, is that this has been a cyclical process that has gone on in this country for ever. And it isn't a one-way ratchet. We've seen a huge expansion and then contraction in the franchise. Mm-hmm. This is just a tragic theme uh, that we don't fix this. We just kind of live out the cycle over and over again. Well, and it, it is sad, as you mentioned, that the what should be the most settled right in a democracy, the right to vote, that it remains the most contested. And you're absolutely right. If you look at the periods of greatest progress, whether it was the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction, or it was the election of Barack Obama. That's always when there's the fiercest backlash. And we're in the midst of this backlash now. And we've seen efforts historically to also overcome that backlash. So I don't want all the slate listeners to go away feeling super depressed about this, because I ultimately do believe that voter suppression is a short-term strategy, that you ultimately can't just keep anyone who disagrees with you from the polls. I do think that there have been efforts to overcome this in the future. In in the past, whether it was the Voting Rights Act or other things, but we're also just not going to fix this problem on its own, that we're going to have to get really serious about solutions in response to all the problems we're seeing, and and people are going to have to call them out uh, for what they are. And so I I think and I hope that the more attention that is given uh, to voting rights issues, that the more likely we are to hopefully do something about it. Ari Berman, political correspondent for The Nation, is author of a tremendously interesting and important new book called Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Amicus. Thanks so much, Dahlia. Before we leave you today, I wanted to say a few words about a brand new sponsor for Amicus, and that would be Audible. And if you're not already familiar with its offerings, you really should be. 
Audible is the leading provider of digital spoken word audio and offers more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products for you to choose from. You will be happy to know that you can try it for free. Audible offers a 30-day trial and a free audiobook. So maybe if you really want to read, oh, say, Give Us the Ballot by Ari Berman, his book on the Voting Rights Act, but you can't quite find the time to do so, you can always order that book from Audible, pop it into your iDevice, and listen to it on your commute. So do it now. Get your free audiobook and a 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com slash amicus. And that is just about going to do it for this episode of Amicus. As always, we love to hear what you think. We miss you. We've enjoyed your letters all summer long. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We love your letters. Remember, if you haven't caught up on all of last season's Amicus episodes, you can find all of them at slate.com slash amicus. Slate Plus members will also find transcripts of all of our episodes there. They post just a few days after the podcasts post. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, but you're thinking about it, you can sign up for a free two-week trial at slate.com slash amicus plus. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. The producer of this podcast is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. And we send out a big, fat thank you to Mishy Harmon, who engineered this week's episode. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for yet another edition of Amicus. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.